Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Who said this? We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Maybe this will help. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1. And we have liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle Mission, and it is clear to the tower. Roger, roll Challenger. Roll program confirmed. Challenger now heading downrange. Engine beginning throttling down, now at 94%. Will throttle down to 65% shortly. Engines at 65%. Three engines are running normally. Three good fuel cells. Velocity, 2,257 feet per second, altitude 4.3 nautical miles, downrange distance, 3 nautical miles. Throttling up, three engines now at 104%. Challenger, go with throttle up. Roger, full throttle up. And I think now all of you have the image of the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger. Velocity, 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange 7 nautical miles. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously, a major malfunction. We have no downlink. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. My director confirms that. We are looking at recovery forces to see what can be done at this point. Seven lives were lost. Francis Scobie, the commander, Michael Smith, the pilot, Ronald McNair, the mission specialist, Ellison Onizuka, mission specialist, Judith Resnick, mission specialist, and two payload specialists, Gregory Jarvis and Krista McAuliffe. And what was unusual about the payload specialist, Krista McAuliffe, is she was not a trained astronaut. She was an ordinary citizen. NASA, the program was losing its popularity and they wanted to revitalize it. And they thought the best way to revitalize it would be to have an ordinary citizen fly into space. And so they went to a contest and 11,500 applicants applied to go to space. 114 were selected from this 11,500. And from that 114, Krista McAuliffe was chosen. She was a high school student, a high school teacher at Concord High School. And the high school watched as the space shuttle launched into space. And her husband and her two children watched as she perished. What went wrong? This was one of the most complex machines ever built. It had two million separate components 
and 700 parts were designated criticality one, that if they failed, there would be loss of life. An engineer that worked for the company that built the shuttle, the company was Morton Thiokol, the engineer Roger Boisgele, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering the French there, B-O-I-S-J-O-L-Y, Boisgele, Boisgele, Roger Boisgele, merci, beaucoup. <laughs> uh, he worked for this company, Morton Thiokol, that won the contract to, to manufacture the shuttle, and he was very concerned. The previous shuttle discovery, when it landed and came back into Earth's orbit, he said they missed tragedy by eight or nine seconds because of something called the O-ring, that in the canisters that house the, the fuel, Morton Thiokol is based in Utah, and they had to, they're landlocked, they had to ship the components in pieces to Florida. Had they been close to the ocean, or uh, yeah, the ocean, they could have shipped it in one piece. But because they were landlocked, they had to make it in pieces and then join it. And they created a rubber ring to go in the joints in order to prevent the fuel from leaking from one component to the next. What Roger Boisjoli noticed was that the O-ring would fail in cold temperatures. That in order to function, the temperature had to be warm enough for the O-ring to expand and seal the gap. On this day, January 28th, when the Space Shuttle Challenger launched, temperatures were unprecedentedly cold. Prior to that, they had to stop the launch several times because of the cold weather. And Morton Thiokol had an emergency conference call with NASA, where Roger Boisjoli pleaded with NASA not to launch. And NASA basically browbeat them to say, let us get this straight. Are you going to, call us to cause us to cancel the launch? And that question basically was like a sword hanging over Morton Thiokol because they were in the process of negotiating their next multi-multi-million dollar contract. And if they said, no, don't launch, they would have lost that contract. So the executives at Morton Thiokol basically pushed the engineers aside and browbeat them to comply that it was okay to launch. And so they launched in this unfavorable cold weather. Turn with me to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24 and verse 8, our Lord prophesies unprecedentedly cold weather for the church. Cold weather that we may not be prepared to function in. In Matthew 24 and verse 8, he says, after speaking of the things that are going to come upon us, he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows, just the beginning. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And notice this. And then shall many be offended 
and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. It's going to be unprecedentedly cold weather for the church. And something as ordinary as an O-ring may fail to perform its function, which could, perform, which could, which could result in catastrophe for the church. And so the question I want to pose today is, no matter what part of the body we are, are we prepared to perform our function in this cold temperature? Or will we be among the many that will be offended? Will we be among the many that will betray one another? Will we be among the many whose love waxes cold? This is a, a question of vital criticality for the church. How do we ensure that we are not the part that brings catastrophe to the church? John 15. Christ gives us the answer. Christ tells us how we can ensure we are not the failing part. John 15, in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so in the same way have I loved you. Continue you. Continue you in my love. Don't go cold. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the commandments have everything to do. His commandments, and I don't just mean the Ten Commandments, I mean every commandment that Christ gives us, have everything to do with our ability to love. He says here, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment. So it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's every commandment he gives. And this is my commandment, that you love one another the way that I have loved you. And we heard Pastor Horain talking about this sacrifice. We heard this, the musicians singing about the sacrifice. This is the way he loved us. And then he says, this is how we ought to love one another. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So on the one hand, we have many that will betray one another. When their life is on the line, they'll throw us under the bus. On the other hand, we have the love of Christ in us, and greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That even at the point of death, we do not fail in our function. We love the brotherhood so much that it's okay, we will lay down our lives and never betray. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. I'd like to ask the ushers to hand out a handout. Uh, I don't have enough for everybody, so you can share, ideally one per household. While they're handing that out, if you can turn to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. 
And let's look at verses 1 to 16. And if you have a King James Version, uh, just help me if I get stuck. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, even from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the firstborn of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those, and they also who pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I, John, who am also, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice which spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks 
And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt around the paps with a golden girdle. His hair, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet were as fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as the voice of many waters. And he held, he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun that shines in his strength. This is the Jesus that we worship. Amen? And I think I, I might have missed one verse there, and I apologize. But he does say, blessed is he who reads and they who hear the words of this prophecy. And that is in the present continuous tense. It means that Jesus Christ wants us to be reading this book over and over and over again. We must be intimately familiar with the prophecy of this book. It is the only book in the Bible that Jesus pronounces such a blessing upon. The handout you have, if you can look at the side that has two tables, And the table on the left, if we were to give it, if the, the bottom dimension, I would say, is one, if it's one inch wide, how long would you say it is? How tall is it? One by, one by three, one by four? One by six? Okay. If that's one by three, four, some say six, the table on the right if the first one is one by, I'd say three or four is what most people think, what would you say the one on the right is? One and a half by two? Two by four? Okay, this, this um, test, I think the gentleman's name is Richard Thale, is that right? Yeah, Thaler. He is a student, or he was a student of Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, a behavioral economist, and he is a Jew who survived Nazi Germany. And he became intrigued with psychology and why people make the decisions they make because as a young boy in Nazi Germany, he was confronted by an SS officer. And the SS officer called him over, and as he was coming, he, he hid whatever it was that identified him as a Jew, and he, he thought he was going to be tortured. And when he came to the SS officer, the officer picked him up, hugged him, put him back down, patted him on the head, and told him to be a good boy. And that he reminded him of his son. And from that moment, Daniel Kahneman was, was intrigued by human judgment and, and why we make the judgments that we do. And Richard Thaler was a student of his, and they've done numerous experiments to try to understand why humans make the decisions that we do. In this particular case, what Richard Thaler is demonstrating is our inability to judge accurately. 
that the table is the same table on both sides. You just take the table and turn it on its side. But because of the different context, we just, I've measured this table at least four times, and I still don't believe it's the same table. So you can take it home and measure it as well. It is the same table, just turned on its side. And what that shows us is our inability to judge accurately. In fact, uh, it's been said that we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. And so whatever we do, we have the whole history of thought that led up to whatever we do. But when somebody else does something, we, we lack that background. We just see the tip of the iceberg, and we judge them. Whereas for us, we see the whole iceberg. Well, what I want to do here in Revelation is say to us, especially here in the first part of Revelation, we lack the ability to judge properly. And I'm speaking specifically of these seven letters, the epistles of Jesus Christ, that he personally sent. It's a personal letter from Christ to the church. And for any of us who came through the worldwide church of God, our, our understanding, our interpretation of these letters is that these churches represent eras beginning from the first century up to the end, and that the worldwide church of God was the Philadelphian era. And so with that mindset, we tend to look at these letters, zero in on the Philadelphian epistle, and ignore the others, because we're Philadelphians. Even if we don't believe in eras, we still believe we're Philadelphians, and so we still choose that letter. Because Christ does not criticize the Philadelphians, but he criticizes the other churches. In fact, he doesn't criticize Smyrna either, but because we don't read the letters carefully, we miss that. What I want to say is that if you look at the other side of the handout, these epistles must be put together, and they must be read together. And that we mustn't just read them vertically, we must also read them horizontally. That we must put them together and read them horizontally. In other words, all the letters apply. That we cannot judge ourselves properly, so what we have to do is read all the letters and look at the actions that Christ hates and look at the actions that Christ loves and do what he loves and cease and desist from what he hates. And this is how we must judge ourselves. Further, we see from the letters that Christ evaluates us congregationally. And so as we move into these days of unleavened bread and we think about deleavening, let us not be so self-centered that we only think of deleavening our lives personally, individualistically. Let us rather think congregationally. And how can we contribute to greater health of our congregation? How can we ensure that no ordinary part fails as the shuttle launches and we seek to meet God in the air? Some clues, three clues, that we are not just to read the letters vertically, that is one epistle at a time, but to read horizontally. The first clue is 
who it's from. In Revelation 1, I just quoted to you from verses 12 to 16, Christ describes himself. And then he takes attributes of that description and just takes a part of his description and says this is who it's from to each church. If the church only read their letter, they wouldn't know Christ. They wouldn't know how Christ describes himself. He wants them to read all the letters, so when they put all of that together, they see Christ in his glorified form. That's the first clue. The second clue that we should read the letters horizontally, not just vertically, are the rewards. One church is promised to eat from the tree of life. Another church is promised that they will not be hurt by the second death. Another church says that they'll receive a new name. Another church that they'll receive power over the nations. Another church that their name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Another church that they'll be made a pillar in the temple of God and that they'll receive the name of Christ. And another that they'll sit with Christ on his throne. So let's just think about this. We have seven congregations. Do we believe that one congregation will be eating from the tree of life, another one will not be hurt by the second death, another one will receive a new name, another one will receive power over the nations? Or do we put all of these rewards together and say that this is the reward of the saved? That you have to put all the letters together to see what Christ is promising to his elect. The third clue, which is really not so much a clue as a command. Turn with me to Revelation 2, verse 7. Revelation 2 and verse 7 says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto his favorite church, and let him ignore what the Spirit says to the other churches, because what the Spirit says to the other churches is irrelevant to him because he's in the good church. Is that what the Spirit says? No. This is the command. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto all the congregations. Verse 11. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Verse 29. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Chapter 3, verse 6. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Chapter 3, verse 13. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Verse 22, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. This is a command from our Lord. This is his personal epistle. These are like love letters to the church. We don't just choose one and read that and ignore the others. We have to read them all very, very carefully. So what I've done, brethren, I learned fast.
is I've taken Christ's epistles, and for each congregation, I've listed vertically the letter. But then I've put it in categories, who it's from, who it's to, what God hates, what he loves, what the reward is, so that we can read it horizontally, not just vertically. So I have about, I have about 100 here. Again, one per household. You're welcome. Now, just before I go on, I want to completely, I, I know there's going to be a couple of holdouts that are saying, no, I'm still Philadelphia. Still good. I'm, I'm Phil-. So I want to disabuse you of that. That there's this notion that I'm Philadelphia, I don't need to pay attention, I'm going to be saved. Let's go to Revelation 3, verse 10. In verse 10, Christ says to this congregation, Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. There it is. I'm safe. Nothing to worry about. I think we have to read the letter carefully. It says that it's the hour of temptation, and a lot of people immediately read into this, the great tribulation. I'll be saved, I'll be spared from the great tribulation. The text does not say that. The text says the hour of temptation. Which hour? There are multiple hours. It's the hour of temptation. Well, which temptation? It says it's the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them which dwell upon the earth. The great tribulation is not an hour of trial for the world. In fact, the world is rejoicing during the great tribulation. When the two witnesses are put to death, it's party time. But this is a time of tribulation for the world. And John is echoing a prophecy in Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 24. In Isaiah 24, verse 6, the prophet writes, Therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. So John spoke of this hour of trial, which will come upon those who dwell upon the earth, those who are established in the earth. Those who have bought into the world's way, into the Babylonian system, and they're established. It's the hour of trial on them. And he's echoing here Isaiah that the curse has devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are finally desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Back to Revelation 6. Revelation chapter 6 this time. We don't even have to leave the book of Revelation to find out who John is speaking about when he says, those who dwell upon the earth. In Revelation 6 and verse 10, the martyrs cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell upon the earth? 
the scripture tells us who they are. So the hour of tribulation is not the hour of tribulation on the church. You see, what we're doing is we're confusing the great tribulation and the wrath of Satan with the wrath of God. These are two different things. The saints are promised that the wrath of God will pass over us, not the wicked. But that does not mean we'll be shielded from the wrath of Satan. And we must be ready so that we do not betray one another. When, when Satan's wrath is ripened and it comes to the full and the saints are being lined up and persecuted, we just say, yes, Lord, Jesus is Lord, and we do not betray because we were expecting it. What we fear is the wrath of God. Chapter 11 and verse 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over the two witnesses and make merry. This is not a time of their trial. This is a time of our trial, not theirs. And they'll send gifts to one another. Chapter 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship the beast. We're not going to worship the beast. And so we will suffer. Those who worship the beast, they can buy, they can sell, they can have a great time. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. Oh, sorry. Uh, they that, all that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. Verse 14. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth. By the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell upon the earth. Chapter 17 and verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder. So we don't even have to leave the book of Revelation, even though he's echoing Isaiah. We need to be very clear, those who dwell upon the earth are evil. They have given themselves over to evil. And they are established in the earth because it's Satan's time. And the saints will be protected from the hour of God's judgment. When the plagues are unleashed. That's when the past, just as ancient Egypt, the, the plagues were selective. They struck Egypt, they didn't strike Israel. And the final plague of the death of the firstborn, they took the blood and put it on the doorposts and the death angel passed over. Well, we know there's a second exodus coming and there's a second Passover. And the blood of Christ will enable us to escape from the wrath of the Lamb. In fact, in chapter 6, the wicked ask, who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And the answer is the saints. Revelation 18. This is the hour, brethren. Revelation 18, verse 17. For in one hour, so great riches have come to nothing. That's the hour. That's the hour that the saints are shielded from. Verse 19. They cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing. This is the time of their trial. Saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. In one hour she is made desolate. 
This is what Isaiah saw. This is what John is prophesying about. So we have to just shake this notion of the Philadelphia era, the Philadelphia church doesn't go through the tribulation. No. The seven letters, Christ chose these seven letters that are in Asia. And he said to John, write to these seven congregations. Because Christ in his wisdom is saying, there are attributes in each of these congregations that when we put them together, I can speak my truth to all saints through all time. And so we can all learn from these letters. As we're in the Days of Unleavened Bread, I want us to see leaven in our congregations the way Jesus Christ sees leaven in our congregation. And let's work together to remove the leaven from our congregations. When we do this, we benefit everybody. We don't want Christ to return and realize there are brothers and sisters who are not with us as we ascend to meet him. Nor do we want to be the part that causes a brother or sister to fail. We don't want to be the one that betrays a brother and sister, and that brother and sister then is offended and leaves Christ. Three categories, brethren, of leaven. When we read the letters horizontally, we see three categories of what Christ hates. And we must hate what Christ hates. And we must love what Christ loves. The first category, brethren, of leaven, from Christ's perspective, is tolerating false doctrine. Tolerating false doctrine. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Look at Revelation chapter 2. And again, this, this is to Pergamos, but let's not think, oh, that's Pergamos, that's not me. The letters to the seven churches must be taken as a whole. And everything that Christ hates is revealed in these seven congregations. Here he says to Pergamos, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he, which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know your works, and where you dwell even where Satan's seat is, or Satan's throne. And you hold fast my name, and you've not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. That is bone-chilling. When the Lamb looks at our congregation and says, I have a few things against you. You are my adversary in these areas. This is bone-chilling. This is urgent. How do we fix this, Lord? But I have a few things against you. Because you have there them that hold, notice, the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly. You will be my adversary, and I will act against you if you don't repent, if you don't remove this leaven of false doctrine, 
and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the sword of his mouth is not just for the wicked. It's for the wicked in the church. That if we don't repent, you know, um, let me say it this way. The Jews, when Christ came, they didn't recognize him. Because they were searching the scriptures, and they saw this conquering king. And Christ came as a suffering servant. And they completely missed it. Are we making the same mistake as the Jews? Are we so steeped in the Gospels and so allergic to Revelation that the Christ we're looking for is the suffering servant? But the suffering servant has come, mission accomplished. The conquering king is who's coming back. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is furious. And he has a sharp two-edged sword that comes from his mouth and it slays his enemies. This is the Christ that's coming back. Are we familiar with this Christ? Are we preparing for this Christ? Or are we preparing for the suffering servant? The suffering servant, brethren, has come and gone. Mission accomplished. Look at 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 4. prophecy is against us. We have to work hard at this deleavening process in order to be among those that God says, well done. Well done, my faithful servant. The prophecies are against us. The temperature is going to go cold. And the reason it's going to go cold is because of false teachers. Many being deceived. When, when Christ says that there will be false teachers and many will be deceived, we sort of have this knee-jerk reflection reaction to say, yeah, the world. Those in the world will be deceived. Christ is talking about the church. That because of false prophets, many in the church will be deceived, and because of this deception, they will betray one another, or we will betray one another. That doctrine precedes behavior. We behave the way we do because of the doctrine we hold. And so the, the devil knows this, and so he raises false teachers to give us false doctrine so that we can engage in false behavior. Here he says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly. It cannot be any plainer than this. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, our time, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This isn't academic, brethren. This is real. The Spirit says so expressly. Expressly. That in our time, these spirits are so seductive that we don't even know what's happening. We don't, we don't know what's happening to us as it's happening. That's how seduction works. That if, if you're going to be seduced, you don't, you don't realize you're being seduced. You're being pulled along, and before you know it, you're where you shouldn't be. So the Spirit speaks expressly. Christ prophesied expressly that false prophets, false teachers will rise up in the church. And I don't, when I say the church, I don't mean CGI. I mean the church. 
And we have to be our brother's keeper. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Verse 6. And, and what I want to convey here, brethren, is the tight relationship, the intersection between doctrine and behavior. And again, if we, and I, you know, Worldwide Church of God was wonderful. I praise God fully for the Worldwide Church of God. My life would not be what it is today without the Worldwide Church of God. Praise God for the work that that church did. But it wasn't perfect, brethren. And the strength of organizing the doctrines and saying this is what the church understands from the Bible, this was wonderful. As a young person with no religious background, no upbringing in church, I came to this church and I could just sit and read booklet after booklet and Bible study and and understand and read the Bible and say, okay, I get it. Wonderful work. But the side effect is that we have separated doctrine from behavior. When we think of doctrine, we think of booklets. And we don't think of behavior. But good doctrine has everything to do with behavior. According to the Bible, there's no such thing as good doctrine without godly behavior. And so when we say doctrine, we mean teaching that results in godly character. That's what doctrine is. So he says here, in verse 6, if you, so in in the back, we have this onslaught of seduction, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And I appreciate the opening prayer where Brother Adam spoke about putting into practice what we learn. So he gets it. We learn, we practice. Doctrine and behavior are together. They're inextricably linked. This is, this is the prayer. And this is what the Bible teaches us. They're inextricably linked. If you, as the pastor, Timothy, put the brethren in remembrance of these things, and these are practical things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine, good teaching, whereunto you have attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself rather unto godliness. Good doctrine, we exercise ourselves to godliness. We don't just have good doctrine so that we can tell the world, oh, we know things you don't know. Oh, you believe in the Trinity? Ha, 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 ha. This is not what we read doctrine for, brethren. We read doctrine so we can stop being filthy. We read doctrine so we can turn aside from our perversity. We read doctrine so we can meet Jesus Christ. He says in verse 8, bodily exercise profits a bit, it does, but godliness, which comes, which is the fruit of good doctrine, is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Verse 13, until I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. In order to prevent the church from being seduced by these spirits and by doctrines of devils, we as the ministry have to keep pointing you to godly behavior. That's what good doctrine is. Verse 14. 
verse 15, meditate upon these things. Give yourself wholly to them, that your profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine, the teaching. Take heed, beware, pay attention. Take heed unto yourself and unto the the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. So our salvation is tied to doctrine. Because our behavior, our ability to resist the doctrine of devils, is in the teachings of God's word. Look at now 2 Timothy. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Yes, and all that live godly, live godly. It doesn't say, and all that have memorized all the booklets, and all that know things that the world doesn't know. This is about living. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The devil hates our lifestyle. But evil men, notice this, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So our society is destined for for just complete debauchery. This is where it's heading. And when you live amongst such corruption, you don't have to be very good to be better. In fact, you can be quite evil and still have better character than those around you. And this is the danger for the church. That we are sliding. As the world fails and slides into debauchery, it's pulling us down with it. But we don't feel so bad because we're better than the world. So instead of looking at the world and comparing ourselves to the world, we have to look at Jesus Christ and compare ourselves to Christ and keep the high standard and, yes, suffer persecution because the world won't like it. He says here, continue you in the things which you have learned, the doctrine, and been assured of knowing of whom you have learned them. And he says in verse 16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is the purpose of doctrine. It's not to know things that the world doesn't know. We know these things so that we realize what God is doing. We are truly going to be in his kingdom. And so we need reproof. We need correction. And we need instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And we will not fail in cold temperatures. He says in verse 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, that I charge you before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So, So Paul was just very clear that it's the Christ of Revelation that's coming back. And so he's charging Timothy before God that this, this, this Christ with the two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth who's going to judge the, the dead and the living. Preach the word. 
Preach it. Preach this word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. It is such a dangerous time. It is such a dangerous time. No one wants to hear the word of God. But we have to preach it. And when we preach it, it's going to be hate speech. But we're preaching for righteousness. And we have to urgently exhort the church, hold on to good doctrine, which isn't academic. It's your character. It's how you live. He says in verse 3, he, he, so he says, preach the word and exhort, reprove, rebuke, ex- with all long suffering. be patient, don't, just keep going. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. It's not, it's not good anymore. They can't stand it. So we get up to try to preach sound doctrine. And it's like, you're not wanted here. Get out of here. Why? Because the world is sinking into debauchery. And it's pulling the church down with it. The time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So there's a desire. I want to do what I want to do. And so what I want is I want teaching that will comply with my desire. I don't want my behavior to comply with doctrine. I want doctrine that complies with my behavior. And so, and, and, and they're insecure because they find a teacher that will teach what they want to hear. But it's not enough because in the back of their mind, they know this isn't right. So they need another teacher that will teach this as well. And another one. And they keep heaping to themselves teachers to reassure them that what they're doing is right. And just one teacher that says, no, this is the godly way, and they freak out. And they have to persecute. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. This is speaking of the church, brethren. The church, members of the church, will turn away their ears from the truth. They had the truth, and they'll turn away from it, and shall be turned unto fables, because the fables match what they want to do. It's all about behavior. First Timothy 6. Bottom of verse 2, he says, These things teach. They're all practical things. They're godly living things. These things teach and exhort. And if any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. Good doctrine is according to godly behavior. If it's just knowledge, it's useless. The knowledge has to result in godly behavior. Which leads to the second category. Of leaven. The second category of leaven, when we read these letters horizontally, not just vertically, we look at what does God hate, we can put in the second category as tolerating sexual immorality. Tolerating sexual immorality. False doctrine leads to this. 
You need false doctrine first to justify the behavior. False doctrine, false ideas, false behavior. The epitome of false behavior is sexual immorality. It's the very first thing that Satan struck Adam and Eve with. Because sexual love in marriage worships God. It reflects Christ and the church. It is holy and sacred. The marriage bed is undefiled. But adulterers, God will judge. Because Satan is worshipped in any sexual contact outside of marriage. And Satan wants to be like the Most High. And so all over the world, what the world is going crazy with is sexual immorality. Because it worships the devil. It worships Satan. Revelation 2. In the book of Revelation, there are only two women. Only two women. And we're in one or the other. One woman is the pure bride of Christ. The other woman is the whore, the harlot of Babylon. And all mankind is associated with one or the other, but not both. We can't be dabbling in both. We're either in one, the spiritual virgins, or we're in the other, a world of debauchery. It's one or the other. He says in verse 18 of chapter 2, And unto the angel in, of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works and charity and service and faith and your patience and your works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, you're my enemy in these areas. Notwithstanding, you are an adversary to me in these areas. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. Why? Because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, so there's going to be false teachers, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. Notice, doctrine precedes behavior. It's not just come along and, and, and let's have a, a debauchery. The, the doctrine has to get in first. You suffer her to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. So he's speaking to the church. And people in the church are being seduced by her. And he's saying, I'm going to cast her and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds. So this is in the church, brethren. And when I say the church, I'm not saying CGF. I'm saying the church of God. It's everywhere. You know, when I was a boy... We wanted to find pornography, and we couldn't find it. We searched for it, couldn't find it. We just knew it was out there. And one day, a friend of mine, Mark Reed, he found his father's stash of magazines. And we hid to look at that. I'm ashamed, but this is the world we grew up in. We hid, hoping we wouldn't get found out. 
And this, brethren, it's like nonsense compared to what children can see today. It's everywhere. It's, it's in our homes. You turn on the TV to watch a show and it's, there's pornography. This would never be allowed. Th- this is pornography. And it's entertainment today. And it's on every television set. It's on every iPad. It's on every phone, every laptop, high definition, flat screen. It's every, uh, Pastor Horain spoke about uh, pornography being a share of wallet. People spending on this. Listen to this from the website questions.org. Why is pornography addiction a serious problem? Today, pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar industry that is spreading a wide net by providing sexual arousal on demand. Modern culture is drenched with sexual images. It is so obsessed with short-term sexual pleasure that sexual self-control and chastity tend to be popularly viewed as manifestations of mental or emotional disorders. So our young people who are trying to be chaste are being perceived by the world and the intelligentsia of the world as suffering from mental problems. And it's only when you engage in this that you're normal. This is what the world has come to. He says here, if large numbers of evangelical Christians began using cocaine on a regular basis, we wouldn't be surprised when many of them developed serious problems relating to cocaine addiction. Yet, although pornography is as addictive as cocaine, these people are, (laughs) these are masterminds who put this stuff together. It's from the mind of the devil. And it's designed to get people addicted. He says here, Yet although pornography is as addictive as cocaine, and it's legal, and it's available anonymously, you can download it, you can see it, you can be in a hotel, and nobody knows, except, of course, him who has an eyes like flames of fire and a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, But your neighbor doesn't know, your spouse doesn't know, your family doesn't know, your friends don't know. It's all anonymous. He says, we're surprised, even shocked, that large numbers of evangelical Christians are pornography addicts. So in the Christian world out there, large numbers of them have become addicted. to. They're there on Sunday, suit and tie, but they are addicts. As soon as they get home, they need the fix. So, if it's affecting the evangelical world in huge portions, could it affect the church? Especially if we're not preaching on it and warning against it? He says here, for many centuries, and listen, I find this particularly insightful. For many centuries, Christians have contemplated the impersonal religious prostitution associated with fertility religious cults. So back in the day, you worship Baal, and you worship Moloch, and you worship these fertility gods. Just go into the temple, and there were prostitutes there, and you got engaged in sexual activity. And this was in the Christian world. Christians had to resist this. And they were abhorred by it. And he says here, 
Yet they lar- this is very insightful. Yet they largely overlook the fact that a new form of fertility worship has moved in to fill the void of loneliness and meaninglessness in our rootless culture. And the modern form is far more subtle, insidious, and addictive than those of the past. So we live in a world where people are lonely. We live in a world where it's hard for people to have meaningful connections. And we live in a world where pornography is available everywhere. And it's fertility worship. It's the same harlot of Babylon. It's Ishtar. It's Samaramis. It's the same fertility satanic worship. And the church is being seduced by doctrines of demons. He says, we are so awash in pornography these days that most of us don't recognize it anymore. If you just watch it, don't, don't even see it. Of internet users in the United States, so this is the United States, but let's just extrapolate it to Canada because it's the same culture, North American culture. Of internet users in the United States, 40% visit porn sites at least once a month. That's 130 million people monthly visiting porn sites. 40%. The number rises to 70% when the audience is men age 13 to 34. So in the United States, 70% is 227,500,000 between 18 and 34 males. Basically, it's everywhere. These people are addicted. They're sick in the head. They, They cannot understand the pure love of Christ and his church because Satan doesn't want them to. Satan wants to destroy them. In fact, these young people, when they actually do meet somebody that they care for, they can't get aroused. Their whole system has been destroyed by fantasy and illusion. It's terrible, brethren. If 227 million, and let's just round it, including Canada, 250 million people in North America are visiting porn sites at least monthly, Could it be in the church? Could it be in the church? Could we put on suit and tie and dress and pretend? But anonymously, privately, we are being seduced by doctrines of demons. And this brethren, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians 5 and verse 1. And what I want us to notice here <clears throat> is the apostle is speaking congregationally. And somehow we don't get this. We read this letter and we think individually. But the apostle is speaking congregationally. He says here, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. So this person was just way over the edge. But that's what happens with these kinds of sins. You start out a little bit, and that's why it's it's always seduction. It's a little bit at a time. And then then that's not enough, so you need a little bit more, and you need a little bit more, and before you know it, you're into all kinds. Homosexuality, polyamory, whatever. But Satan doesn't start with that. He pulls you along gradually. So this man now, by now, he's having his father's wife. And you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned. 
that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So they're very sophisticated, very tolerant. Christ is very intolerant. Christ has no toleration for wickedness. Are we tolerant of wickedness? Corinthians were. You have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I have a long-term view. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Notice this now. This is where we go off track. Verse 7. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So we read verse 7, and we say, oh, I've got to get the leaven out of my life. But the instruction to the congregation is to get the leaven out of the congregation. He's speaking congregationally, just as Christ was speaking congregationally. So purge out, therefore, the old leaven that you, plural, collectively as a congregation, can become a new lump as you are unleavened. Therefore, let us, plural, keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is clearly an instruction that is congregational. The third and final category from Christ's epistles of leaven that we must remove is the loss of passion. The loss of passion. Becoming indifferent to God's Word. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's all connected. It, it cascades. We start with false doctrine. That enables us to engage in false behavior. When we engage in first behavior, we become discouraged. And when we become discouraged, we become indifferent. And we grow cold to Christ. So this third category is losing our passion for God. We were in Matthew 24 already. Let's go to Hebrews 12. When we are discouraged... Christ will correct us. He will act and he will correct us because he does not want us to continue in discouragement. He loves us. He shed his blood so that we can wash our sins in his blood. Satan wants us to be discouraged. He wants to take our courage away from us. Christ wants us to be encouraged. He says here in Hebrews 12, you know, so the church is facing pressure and persecution from outside, but it's also decaying on the inside. And that's what caused the shuttle to explode. Is It wasn't the fire. It was the decay on the inside, the malfunction on the inside. And so we're going to face pressure. But if we're strong, if the Spirit is strong in us, we can face it. We can face it. He says here in Hebrews 12, You've not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, my beloved son, 
despise not the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise it. Nor faint when you are rebuked of him. As many as he loves, he rebukes. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Don't get discouraged, brethren. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Drop down to verse 12. He says, well, verse 11, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It's horrible. It's terrible to go through it. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. This is what we need, the fruit of righteousness, unto them who are exercised thereby. Therefore, lift up the hands which hang down. We're discouraged, and the knees are feeble. He says, lift them up. Be encouraged. Be emboldened. Christ loves you. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. God is not joking. But let it rather be healed. Allow Christ to work in us and heal us. We're all filthy. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Again, we think congregationally, and we're looking diligently that we all experience the grace of God and the ultimate grace of our Lord. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, big trouble, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And that's what Satan wants us to do. We have the kingdom of God ahead of us. And Satan is offering, offering us illusion, fantasy. But it feels good. Hey, if it feels good, I know. I'll trade the kingdom of God for illusion that feels good right now. And then afterwards just leaves me feeling empty and destroyed. What a great exchange. For you know how afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought for it carefully with tears. So brethren, I'll, I'll have these out just outside here. I know that they want us to clear the hall immediately after, so I'll put these outside. If you can take one per household, I think you'll find it helpful to read the letters horizontally in addition to vertically. And as we read them horizontally, we're trying to understand who is this from? Who is it to? What does God love? What does he hate? What is our reward for overcoming? And in fact, I was talking to uh, Lisa's mother, Linda, yesterday. And she said, these days of unleavened bread are days of conquest. That Jericho's walls fell during these days. And so if we are being held by strongholds such as pornography, or even gaming addiction, or alcohol, or anger, or whatever it is, these are the days to break those strongholds. These are the days to cry out to God and have him act powerfully in our lives and transform us and transform our congregations. He says in Revelation 2, and you don't have to turn there, but just Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your works. Verse 5, do the first works. Verse 9, I know your works. Verse 13, I know your works. Verse 19, I know your works. 
I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Verse 26, keep my works to the end. Chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works. Verse 2, I have not found your works perfect before God. Verse 8, I know your works. Verse 15, I know your works. Speaking congregationally, I think, I don't think I'm out on a limb here. I hope you'll agree with me. That the works of our congregation matter to Jesus Christ. And that the works of our congregation are part of his evaluation of us and our worthiness of him. So we can't earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift. But Christ has expectations of us. And so this is the time for us as congregations to pull together, to get the leaven out of our congregations, and to do the works of God. To, please, to show God our gratitude by doing his works. Let's conclude. We'll go to Malachi 3 and then Revelation 22. Let's go to Malachi 3 first. Malachi 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who, same question we saw in Revelation 6, who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. We must pass through this fire. We must be refined. He is like a refiner's fire, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So these seven astronauts on the space shuttle Challenger, they went through a consuming fire. But in that consuming fire, they perished. The seven congregations of Revelation must also go through a consuming fire. But this consuming fire purifies us. This consuming fire purifies us, brethren, so that we can slip the surly bonds of earth and see God face to face. Let's conclude in Revelation 22. Revelation 22 and verse 6. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. These are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. That's what Revelation is all about, brethren. And I hope you have been following our Bible studies on the book of Revelation. If you haven't, there's 24 hours of content in the archive on the book of Revelation. And we have to be intimately familiar with this book and, and keep reading it and reading it in order to get the blessing that Christ wants us to have so that we can know these things that must shortly be done. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. If we don't read the book, 
How can we keep the sayings of the prophecy of the book? We have to read the book. We have to be familiar with it. He says he comes quickly. Let's seal the O-ring. Let us not be the ring or the, that, that we think we're ordinary, we don't matter. Something as simple as an O-ring caused the catastrophe of challenges. So don't look at yourself and say, oh, well, I'm just an ordinary member. Every member has a role. Every member has a part in the body. And every member is vital. And we must function, even in cold temperatures. So Christ tells us ahead of time, the temperature is going to drop. Let's be ready. Behold, he comes quickly. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, verse 10. And he said unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And I beheld, sorry, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give unto every man according as his work shall be. We need work, brethren. We need to be working for God. And Pastor Horain spoke of that in his offertory. I am Alpha and Omega. He's the Passover and the last great day. It's all about him. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Four, three, Two, one, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And we have liftoff. Liftoff of the seven churches in Revelation. And it is clear at the tower. Roger, roll churches. Roll program confirmed. Churches now heading downrange. Engines beginning to throttle down at 94%. We'll throttle down to 65% shortly. At 65%, three engines running normally, three good fuel cells, velocity 2,257 feet per second, altitude 4.3 nautical miles, downrange distance 3 nautical miles. Throttling up, three engines now at 100%, 104%. Churches, go with throttle up. Yes, Lord. Full throttle up. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.